Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Homeschool with Moxie podcast, where our goal is to inspire and encourage you with actionable strategies to take you from overwhelmed to confident in your homeschool adventure. I'm your host, Abby Banks, and this is episode number 87. This episode is brought to you by my great big list of free homeschool resources. I know homeschool moms are like the best group for being thrifty and finding deals, and especially if things are free, right? We don't want to spend a ton of money, and for homeschooling a bunch of kids, we love to get our hands on free stuff, but it can also take a whole lot of time to hunt down quality free resources. But what if that work could be done for you? What if you didn't have to do a massive hunt each month. If this sounds like a big blessing to you, then I want you to know that you can get on my list and grab your great big list of free homeschool resources because every month I join forces with my homeschool blogging mom friends and we offer totally free homeschooling resources multiple times every month. Sometimes it's actually paid resources and you might get a hundred dollars worth of free resources that month. And because you're on our email list, you don't pay a penny. So if this sounds amazing to you, if you want to grab your own free homeschool resources, definitely check it out at 41more.com forward slash free. Welcome to episode 87. I'm so glad you're here. And speaking of that free homeschool resources list, my guest today, Julie Polanco, who blogs at julienaturally.com. She also is the host of her own podcast, The Crunchy Christian Podcast. Julie is one of those other homeschool mom bloggers who offers her resources with that roundup I was talking about. So if you like uh, you know, what Julie has to say in today's interview, you're going to definitely want to get on that free resource list because Julie is one of the contributors to that list. So this was a great um, chat I had with Julie. She sent me her book called God Schooling. There was a lot of great information in there. She talks about things like trusting God with your children's future, how to promote self-motivation with your kids, um, developmentally appropriate learning for different ages, and really what is real relevant learning and how do we cultivate that in our homeschool. So her book obviously covered a ton of topics, all the different age ranges. But when I read her chapter about teaching children ages 8 through 12, for some reason it just jumped out at me. I thought her insight and wisdom was really great. Julie is a veteran homeschool mom, and she's even graduated some of her kids. So she has a lot of experience to be able to speak to these uh, different age levels and give us some guidance on what she did and what worked and what didn't. And so we talked about a whole lot related to teaching your kids ages 8 through 12. 
I only have, um, let me think, for a short time more, one child in that age group. I guess technically two for this school year, for most of the school year. I only have two kids left in that age group, and I feel like I'm quickly moving on to high school ages. But I'll tell you, this is such a fun age to homeschool. There is so much you can do. They they are just sponges. They have natural curiosity. They love learning if you don't school it out of them. And Julie really gives some great ideas that you can use in your homeschool right away. So I will link to Julie's book, Julie's site, Julie's podcast, like every single thing we talk about, you can find links to it in the show notes at 41more.com forward slash 87. So sit back and enjoy. Here's my conversation with Julie Polanco from julienaturally.com. Julie, thanks for joining us on today's episode. Oh, great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks, Abby. So before we jump into our topic today, go ahead and introduce your family. So I have four children. Uh, my oldest is about to be 22. That's, um, she's a girl. Um, she's currently obviously graduated and is uh, pursuing a degree in um, it's uh, nuclear medicine technology. Wow. Uh, my son, my, my second child, my son is 19. He is doing uh, Praxis, if you've heard of that. It's a business apprenticeship program, uh, and he's pursuing something with marketing or sales. And then I have two left that I'm homeschooling. I have a daughter who is 16 and a son who is 13. So I have been homeschooling since the beginning. Uh, so this is the beginning of my um, 19th year because uh, we started when my oldest was four. Um, and uh, it, it's been quite a ride. <laughs> That's awesome. You have quite the experience then with all the different age groups. And when you sent me your book, I thought this is, I was, I was reading it to see what jumped out at me. And what I wanted to narrow in on is your chapter today about teaching children aged 8 through 12. So you're totally out of that stage. I have two in that stage right now, and then I have three teenagers. But for some reason, I think this stage, I don't know why it jumped out at me, but I think this stage is where a lot of parents kind of run, if they start homeschooling, they they kind of, they, they get in these... Um, with these issues of like, well, I'm failing my kids or they're not doing as good as I thought. And I just feel like if we can make it through some of these bumpy years, eight through 12 and get a good foundation, maybe parents will have the confidence to keep going through high school. So I loved what you mentioned in that chapter. And so today's episode, we're going to jump deep dive kind of into your wisdom about teaching children ages eight through 12. So one of the first things I noticed in that chapter that, that I stuck out was you said, this. While children in this age group often still suffer from ill-paced expectations, we often underestimate them in other areas. And I found this true with my own kids. Can you dive into what you're talking about here? Okay. So um, in the sort of psychosocial developmental timeline, um, this is the stage that children are learning how to be competent in something. It's often a stage where kids can, they can uh, adopt attitudes of learned helplessness 
And it can, but on the other side of that, they can also learn a great deal of self-confidence and have that confidence to move forward through the high school years with a, a lot less um, angst and problems because they have that foundation. And learned helplessness comes from repeated failure at something. So being asked to do something that maybe they're not developmentally ready for or they're just not really good at, and we get worried. We're like, oh, you know, you need to keep practicing at this. You need to keep doing it. And so they just experience failure after failure after failure. And so they expect to fail. And so they just learn to be helpless at that. And at that point, they don't even want to try. So we want to avoid that. Um, And so in learning how to be competent, we can, if they're having, if they're not quite evenly developing in some of those other areas, and most kids are not, like they're a really good reader, but not so good at math, or they're really good at math, and not so good with the reading and writing, um, then um, we want to focus on their strengths, mostly, and help them really develop the strengths, and sometimes use the strengths to help them with the weaker areas, um, and when we're talking about the underestimating them in some of these other areas, we're talking about their competence in handicrafts, their competence in chores, in work, in learning musical, athletic, uh, you know, entrepreneurial techni- or technical types of skills. It's amazing to me how many of them know all kinds of special moves in video games, but they can't, they can't write a paragraph, for example. <laughs> um, they have amazing capacities for memory, um, and they have um, a lot of skill that can be developed with their hands. Um, so helping them to be more competent in other areas can often translate into greater competence and desire to challenge themselves academically. So, for example, like maybe we don't allow them to cook, but maybe they should be allowed to cook. Um, that I, Young children can be very good with those things. Um, they can learn to use adult tools in the workshop, uh, in dad's workshop, for example. They can learn to use a sewing machine. They can learn um, all, a, a whole lot of those types of skills and become very good at them. Um, that was something we did with my youngest son, who had a little bit of the uh, learned helplessness because he had a very low frustration level tolerance. Like he just, it, it, it didn't take very long for him to just decide to give up. Um, and he would constantly compare himself to his older brother. So um, we helped him by uh, using some of those kinds of skills, the handicraft skills to help him gain confidence in other areas. Cause gee, if I'm really good with this, if I can do this, then maybe I can do this other thing too. And it gives them some of that uh, greater confidence with that. So that's, that's, that's what I was talking about with that. Um, uh, Cause I had seen a lot of parents have low expectations with chores and with uh, just other 
um, more uh, loose types of skills like that that aren't academic. Um, they had low expectations in those areas, but very high academic expectations. And really, it it, it should be a little bit of the reverse. <laughs> That's uh, makes sense. And also, like, if kids are in a traditional school, they're not going to have all the time to pursue all those other things you were talking about, even, you know, the learning how to cook or working in the workshop or using their hands. Like, it seems like school is just the academics. And so kids are missing out on that well-rounded growth, right? Yeah. And one of the, uh, the brain research, one of the things that I discovered with brain research is that movement the the movement centers of the brain the back of the brain are directly connected to the frontal cortex so the more that a kid moves and use their hands the more connections they make to their thinking centers Mm -hmm. so those hands-on kinds of skills like that are really vital to help them to be able to tackle those more thinking type of tasks Hmm. Now, what about kids at this age and playtime? Because sometimes we think, oh, okay, by the time they're eight to 10, haven't they outgrown playtime? What do you say about that? <laughs> I know that is a, that is a, a, a common perception. The, the, the play changes. Maybe they don't need to play as much as when they were younger, but the way that they play really changes and it becomes far more sophisticated and involved. And I mean, they're able to create very complex worlds and levels of play that they weren't able to do when they were smaller because, you know, little kids kind of model their play after real things, but older kids model things after stuff that they imagine. Um, and they like to explore what's possible. So it starts to move and that it, it gradually moves into a more adult level of play. Cause you know, we play too, right? <laughs> so, and, and it's, it's a safe place for them to explore ideas without them actually happening. Uh, so it's, it starts to mirror us in that way. So they do need that space. But, you know, little kids don't play with um, the, those, uh, the connects, those complex connects tools. They don't really play with those. They can't create a roller coaster with that, whereas a, a, maybe a 10-year-old could. Um, they don't play with things that are like erector sets or uh, building um, complex uh, world like worlds for their dolls or you know barbies they just maybe start to play with barbies but they're not going to the moon and you know i mean they're just they're not they're not doing the complex types of things that uh that they do when they're older so we shouldn't be afraid then to make sure there's plenty of time for these kids to actually explore, like, you know, right? We shouldn't think yes. they have to be sitting and doing school all day because it sounds like they need that time for imagination. Yes. And creativity is, um, it's actually the, the measured amount of creativity has been decreasing. And so we really need to work to combat that by, allowing that time for creativity and encouraging it because that is what helps protect people from 
hopelessness and depression and also helps them learn problem solving, which is so vital these days. I I mean, more than ever, people being able to come up with new solutions to things. And that starts from a foundation of creative creative play in childhood. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Now, I guess we would say the foundational subjects are math, reading, and writing. And at this age, they can actually be a little frustrating to teach our kids (laughs) those subjects. There are just so many um, issues that come up. I've heard from friends where they're like, you know, it's not going the way I thought, you know, in these core subject areas. So maybe you can talk us through your experiences with homeschooling, the math, the reading, and the writing to this age group. Okay, so I had... um... I, my two sons are really good with math, not so good with the reading and writing. My oldest daughter was an early reader. She read at four. Um, that's why we started homeschooling at four. <laughs> um, and then my youngest daughter was pretty average with all of those things. Um, so I can speak a little bit to how that is very frustrating and can Um, and how it can develop during that time. So with the reading uh, with my sons, um, and even with the girls, I I took an attitude of, well, um, I will teach them to read when they show me that they're ready to learn, because it's really a developmental skill. You can't make a kid read when their brain is not ready to read. Um, it will just take you way too long and they're still not going to read until three years after you started (laughs) and you'll just think it took three years to teach them when it really didn't. Um, so I took that tack and I, I made sure I had a lot of different kinds of reading material around. Um, and I also read to them a lot and, the girls, you know, they started to show, oh, you know, trying to sound out words and asking me what words were. And it's like, okay, now I'm going, we're going to move into a reading curriculum. So I did use a reading curriculum with them. I tried to use something that was, that incorporated a lot of like real type books, like a Bob books type of thing. Um, I'm not going to like plug any particular curriculum program, but that's, I just tried to use something that taught reading through reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, because it's consistent, of course, with my own philosophy <laughs> about it. Um, my sons, my oldest son, I had a lot of fears around him. Now, if his oldest sister hadn't read it for, I would have thought it was me. And a lot of people do think that, oh, it's me. I can't teach my kid to read. And I'm a bad mom and all that. And that is not it at all. It's just he he just, I, because of her, I knew it wasn't me. And um, I tried program after program after program. And I, looking back, I felt that was really a mistake because I pretty much taught him to hate reading by doing that. And it took him a long time to get over that. And, um, I, uh, I am a Christian and I prayed a lot about this and I, I felt that the Lord told me to say, you just need to leave him alone, just leave him alone and he will read. And I did leave him alone and he did read and he reads now and he writes blog posts 
And, you know, Praxis people are like, oh, these are these are really good blog posts and we love it. And, you know, you have a great perspective and he's very succinct in his writing because he still does not like to write. But um, but it did happen for him. It happened later. Um, But, you know, on the other hand, the kid finished a year's, you know, algebra textbook in three months. So, you know, they often are, it's often like that. They're good at the math and the spatial thinking and not so good with the reading. And for him, he uses his memory a lot uh, to memorize what words look like. But he also, because I did persist in teaching, he did learn the phonics and he does use that. The younger boy, I learned my lesson. (laughs) I didn't do it quite like that with him. I waited And when he seemed like he was ready, I taught him. But then there was this plateau where he just wasn't getting it. He wasn't moving forward. He wasn't getting it. It was it was kind of weird. It was like, okay, you didn't show the same problems. Um, And so I just I laid off and then he started to move along again. And it was almost like it took six months for what I taught him to sink in and begin to really makes sense. And so then we would move forward again. Um, and I use, I use this, the same program to teach all four of them. Um, it's just the one son. I didn't just use that program. I used several others too, because I thought maybe it was something with that program. So it's a long way of saying that, um, be careful about teaching them to hate reading. Um, and really wait for the developmental leaps that happen. Trust yourself and your children um, that if they're not showing any other cognitive delays, that their mind is just taking a little while and just keep reading to them because they, they want to read because they see you doing it. They see it's important. They very often need to read something to be able to play their video games or be able to read instruction manuals. They have to be able to read those things. So it's not that they don't want to be able to do what you do. Um, I sincerely feel that it's because they, they're not quite, their brain is busy doing something else first. Mm-hmm. Um, I love how you said we could feel like it's our fault and like we're doing something wrong, but you're right. Like kids are on their own timetable and let's not rush them. They are going to learn. And I wish I would have known that 10 years ago when we were struggling with a dyslexic child, it did feel like, oh, I'm failing him. And it really, he was on his own timetable. So I think a lot of parents need to hear that because it can be frustrating and you can feel like you're, you're ruining your kids and you're not. And so that's really helpful. Now, along with the reading, I find that writing at this age can be tricky because, you know, sometimes you look at curriculum and they're expected to write these reports and essays and you're like, whoa, where did this come (laughs) from? It's like out of the blue, they should just be able to write. But, you know, writing, as you know, requires just so many skills and then putting it all together. So how can we practically help our kids develop those skills without getting exasperated when they're not writing book reports and essays at eight years old, like how, what's the timeline look for like a real good foundation for writing? 
Well, um, I will say, Char- if, if you like Charlotte Mason and you read some of her stuff, she said that the child should be doing oral narration until they're 10, that they should not be doing written narration, which in my mind is like writing an essay or writing a journal entry or something like that. They shouldn't be doing any of that until they're at least 10. And at that point, that it should only be a sentence or two, a sentence or two. Like that just, they blew my mind when I read that first. And I was like, wow. Um, so that's just, that's something to keep in mind with that. That And that's a very popular homeschool philosophy. Um, it certainly influenced my homeschool. Um, and t- taking that then, the other thing is what, is the what is the the foundational problem is it the handwriting aspect is it the coming up with ideas aspect um is it organizing the ideas in their mind uh what what is the foundational problem um because sometimes even with older students who are 10 12 years old they can still struggle and and it, we may think, oh, they don't want to do it, or um, but maybe they're struggling with one of those things. Sometimes it's it's all the mechanics and all the stuff they have to remember. They don't want to put their pen down because oh, I can't spell well. Oh, I can't remember. Is there a capital there or a comma or you know what comes first? And all I mean, all the things that we're saying that it takes a lot to be able to write and to write well. Um, so. When they're young, there's a lot of oral storytelling. I mean, little kids, young young children under 10, really, what are they writing about? They're writing their own stories that they come up with. And I mean, even just writing a good story <laughs> is, is, um, takes some knowledge too. <laughs> you, um, you can't just say, oh, I went to the store. That's not a story, you know. Um, so helping them to be a good storyteller orally first. And also, you know, they're also just talking about their day and what they did. Those are really the two kinds of things that young kids do. They just, it's, that's, that's what they have to talk about. They're not an expert in anything, you know? Um, So helping them to do that orally and master that helps them to then later be able to put it to paper. Um, one of the one of my favorite books about storytelling is um, it's by uh, Emily Newberger, and um, it's, it, it's tell me a story, and it it's mostly doing craft type activities where you're creating like a story mat or a story jar or story cubes, things like that that inspire that inspire storytelling. Uh, kids love telling stories. So helping them to get that down. And while, while they're doing the storytelling orally, teaching them the foundational things, the spelling, the mechanics, but the mechanics done in like an editor-in-chief kind of way, I think is much more productive and fun because it's in context. Um, they're finding all the errors, and in finding the errors, they learn what how it's supposed to look. Uh, and then 
as they get old enough, it uh, becomes, it, it kind of sticks in their head. Did I do that right? You know, um, but starting with from the oral base and not worrying about it, taking, taking Charlotte Mason's advice and which is kind of radical, um, but she was an educator also. Uh, and using that as a base from which to work. And all and her students learned to write very well. We don't have to teach young children how to write when they can. They only just learned how to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah. they really, really became fluent in reading maybe at seven, and then we're trying to get them to write, you know, whole paragraphs at age eight is really... Yes. A lot to ask. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think if parents are facing a lot of frustration in this area, this is what they need to take a look at. Are they pushing their kids to do that physical writing too soon? I think you're right. Like keep the oral narration going. That also helps kids to eventually not have a blank head when they have to write at age 12, right? Because if they're used to telling stuff orally, then it's so much easier to transfer that to writing because they already have that story in their head. They can easily write it down. So one of your other ideas you mentioned in your book about that I thought is a great idea to use for helping those reluctant writers who maybe are like, I don't know what to write about. You talked about a traveling notebook. Can you explain what that is? So a traveling notebook is also meant to help uh, create memories and relationship with the parent. So it could be any kind of notebook, or you could decorate the outside, whatever you want to do. One of those composition notebooks that you get for a dollar at the drugstore works well. So pretty much you're putting open-ended questions inside. So the parent might um, put a question like, what was your favorite part of the movie last night? Uh, something that's not a yes, no answer. That's very important. Or a one word answer. Like don't, don't ask something like what would, what's your favorite color or something. Um, but something open-ended and then you give it to the, you leave it on their bed or you give it to the child and it, it, it invites them to share about themselves and their feelings and their thoughts. And they can get that down on paper and they don't even realize they're writing and then the, the rule about it, though, is that the kid, the child gets to ask a question to you, too. So then they'll ask their question. Maybe it's even the same question. So what was your favorite part? You know, and they give it back to you. And then you write and make sure that it's really legible and that you're writing correctly. Because, of course, as they're reading what you wrote, they're seeing a good example. And then you ask another question. Um, what is your favorite memory of, you know, Christmas memory or, you know, whatever. So it just goes back and forth like that. Um, and at the end, you have this fabulous memory book of all of these beautiful things about you and your child, as well as having a, a very casual sort of writing exercise. So it's just, it's a super fun relationship building kind of way of, of sneaking it in. Did you do this with all your kids? I did it with one of my kids and then it it, it gets kind of cumbersome if you're doing it with everybody yeah. at once. It's like, oh my goodness, it's, it's a little overwhelming. Um, 
We did, uh, we did one of the other things they mentioned, which was the mailboxes. Okay. Um, so we did family mailboxes, oh, nice. you know, cereal boxes or whatever that we decorated. And then we could write letters to each other, which was oh, also fun. That's so we fun. did that. Mm-hmm. I love that. I wish this sounds like such a fun idea. And I'm wishing I heard of this 10 years ago as well. But <laughs> I, I have one more young child, I could do this with her. And I think maybe girls would enjoy this more than boys. I don't know. Yeah, Sometimes boys aren't as sentimental as about stuff. I don't know. But um, this sounds fun. I'm going to have to try the traveling notebook. Now, you also talked quite a bit about experiential learning and learning deeply. And I love these concepts, because sometimes we are just too quick to like check off the the homeschool boxes, get the work done, put it away. And we're, we're just so going so shallow. We're not really getting into stuff deeply. Can you kind of define what you're talking about there and explain a little bit about how that works? So experiential learning is kind of like immersion learning or, um, I guess a formal, term for it is is kind of like apprenticeships like an older an older child or an adult would call an apprenticeship learning by doing um you know there's that old adage you know i i hear i see i do you know um so experiential learning is learning by doing it by experiencing it um and some some subject areas are easier to do that with than others, but it also acknowledges that all learning is integrated. Uh, you can't really separate art from history or writing from history. You can't really separate science and history. Everything is really interrelated. And by sort of immersing oneself in an experience of a topic you can see all those connections and pull them all in. And the learning then naturally goes deeper. Instead of just learning the facts that every every kid is supposed to learn about, we'll just say plants, for example, it's very superficial. What are the parts of the plants? How does the plant do photosynthesis? Well, if we're going to really do an experiential immersion-based thing, not only are we going to grow plants and do some experiments with plants, but we also are going to take a look at some things like uh, maybe wicked plants, you know, how, how, how plants have behaved badly through history and um, how plants are often involved in deaths of famous people and, <laughs> and and uh, and have been used um, to uh, you know poison or or just accidental ingestion things like that. We're going to learn a little bit about the the how different kinds of plants played a role in slavery and to how plants are used today to develop drugs. So it, it's taking it and going much further than just checking the boxes and just. Well, they learned what they're supposed to learn for fifth grade this year about that topic and moving on to something else. It's, it's, it's giving room to go beyond that and to be, uh, help your child to maybe even become an expert in something, uh, which, you know, those super niche types of knowledge uh, is what makes your child stand out as a teen. It's... It, being a, a subject matter expert uh, is really 
very desirable with that. Um, Makes sense. So if we want to give our kids this wide variety of experience related, like you said, it's all integrated, his science and history and geography. Can you give us some examples or some ways that if we were like, yeah, we want to expose them to all these experiences, how does that look? Do you have some examples of what you did with your kids? Um, well, okay. So my, my youngest son had a fascination with small animals. So Um, he was not old enough to have a pet of his own. I mean, part of doing experiential learning with that is is what I did with the other kids around small animals. So he he had little puppets, these little mouse puppets that he had to take everywhere. But the mouse puppets, um, he wrote, he created stories about the mouse about mice he did tons of research about gerboas and you know and the hamsters and mice and rats and i mean all from all over the world discovered that that the smallest one is the size of a dime i i cannot even believe that i did not know some little mammal existed that was the size of a dime um so he, he did a lot of science things that way. And, of course, along the way, learned about the plague and things like that, even as a little guy. The older ones actually dissected rats. So they learned about, you know, and he watched. I, I wouldn't let him do it, but he was there, of course. <laughs> you know, so they did some of the that kind of thing. And... um but in terms of the study, the other study part, he did most of that. Uh, so he, it began as just this cute little puppet thing that he just had to carry around with him everywhere. And that lasted for like five years. He collected them, made armor for them. So, and then of course, read things like Redwall and stuff. So it, it became this all encompassing kind of thing. And I never intended for it to draw in all of these other uh history and science and all of that but it naturally did because he just wanted to learn more and more and more and I allowed room for that instead of cutting it off and saying no 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 we're we're not going to we're not going to do that we have to do we have to check off the boxes Mm -hmm. um instead we just ran with it and it became something that is really special. And he remembers all of those things today, even now that he's 13. <laughs> he remembers all of it. And now he does have his own pet rats, which he's like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to train them. I'm going to teach them and he tracks how much food they eat. And and um, he it, it's it's become this just something much bigger. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, That's like a passion-driven education. That's like taking yes. what they naturally love. You're, they're going to naturally, you, you, pr- you didn't have to tell them to do any of that research. He just wanted to do mm-hmm. it. So yeah. that's, a, that's a great example of, of the way we can use that in our homeschool. So we're almost done. I did want to ask you about the concept of strewing. I've seen this around quite a bit recently. And like I was telling you before we started recording, like 
it, I don't know that it, I don't know that I saw it around as much like say 10 years ago, but I feel like it's a concept that I've, I've seen much more recently people talking about this. So what is strewing? And I know you've, you used it when your kids were younger. What, what does that look like and what are the benefits? Um, so when they were younger, I, I, I've done a little bit with my youngest son even now, but it's, it's about finding things you think that they might be interested in based on their current interests or uh, things they may have said or things you've seen them kind of get into or a TV show they like or something like that. Um, so like when you're out, and I, I really like to, to raid the Goodwill and the thrift stores and that, and, and I would find some great finds. So I would find a weaving loom. I would find... Um, a rock tumbler, things like this. And I, I would bring them home and I would just kind of leave them on the table and see what would happen. And there have been times when I, I find something else that's very unique. For a while, my younger daughter was really into maps. And I was out and I found this great little, it was a book about um, the maps of fairy tale worlds. Like it was, it was just, I, I had never seen anything like that. The map of Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, of the giant's, the giant's realm. Like, okay. <laughs> so I brought it home and just kind of left it there on the table. Other times I've left things in people's rooms and it's just sort of like leaving little sort of treats, educational treats, I guess, that you think that they might like. Um, and, and just see what they do with it. It's not assigned. It's just something to stimulate additional learning or that, uh, would inspire them or encourage them to dig a little bit deeper into something they already have expressed interest in. Um, so I've done, done some of that. Sometimes it's just, picking up books at the library that I find that I think they would like and leaving them on the table or on their bed or something. Sometimes it's like I said, that raids at, at the thrift store that I find something really cool. It's like, Oh wow, that's normally really expensive. And I got it, yeah. you know, just pennies, you know, um, uh, and leaving it there. And then I don't feel bad if they don't like it. Cause yeah. I didn't yeah. much for it. Um, but yeah, it, it's like, it's like leaving, leaving little, little nuggets for them to find. Okay. I feel better hearing you describe it. Cause I, I'm not a bad mom. I did that when the kids are little. I can think of, <laughs> I just, I guess sometimes when I see it, it looks so curated and organized and it's like this whole theme and they've got 10 things along a theme. And I thought, Oh, I wasn't that organized when the kids are little. But yeah, like we had an experience where at a thrift store, I found like this box of alphabetized cards about every animal in the world. And there was a picture oh. and where it was in the world. And my oldest, who like me, maybe was six at the time, he just devoured that. Like he just would spend hours studying the cards and what animal and where they live and this and that. And he played with like your son with the mice and the rats and stuff. He played with those animal cards for years. And it was one of those random purchases at the thrift store. You know, I said, it was <laughs> the best $3 I ever spent. But I guess that is what it is. It's just something that, they just latch on to, and they're learning all this stuff that I never intended him to learn about all the animals and alphabetize them and whatever, but he just was so into it. 
that now you made me feel better. So strewing is a little <laughs> bit of a natural mom thing probably when you're just like, okay, what is a new skill or what what, what would this child find interesting? So I, I think that's great. And um, thrift stores are definitely a good spot to find that stuff. Yeah. I love that. So as we wrap up, Julie, this is we've really covered a lot of ground today. And I think it's going to be helpful for parents with kids in this age group. But as we wrap up, just maybe you can leave um, homeschooling parents just with a final word of encouragement, you know, whether or not they have kids in this age group, but what, what final encouragement can you give? I would say that just relax. Okay. Just relax because your kid, you, you were given to your kids because you are the perfect parent for them. You have something to offer. You have things to teach them and they have things to teach you and just enjoy them. Go with their passions and invite them into your passions. You are such an inspiration inspire them invite and and invite them along and don't be afraid to just do stuff do stuff um everything is an adventure you know it it enjoy them and enjoy the adventure because it's it, it ends so short <laughs> I hope this conversation with Julie gave you some practical ideas and solutions and some inspiration and encouragement. Definitely check out Julie's site and her book and her podcast, all of which will be linked to in the show notes at 41more.com forward slash 87. If this podcast is an encouragement to you, would you consider being a monthly supporter? You can find out more by going to 41more.com forward slash support. And in the meantime, happy homeschooling.